And turn with me this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're continuing our study through this letter to the Thessalonian church. And we'll be in chapter 2 and looking at verses 13 through 16. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 16. And you know, the person who gives an order changes how you respond to it. That is, it is, the, it is a matter of authority. What authority does that person have to give you an order? For instance, imagine that someone comes to you and tells you that you need to leave your home, you need to leave your country, you need to leave your extended family, and you're going to go to a place that you know nothing about. What would you do? And again, who's, who it is that is speaking to you matters. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, right, Abram heard the word of the Lord. He recognized the authority of the Lord to speak to him. And it's apparent that he recognized the authority of the Lord because he obeys, right? It says there at the, in verse 4, so Abram went. Abram went as the Lord had commanded him. He listened and he obeyed, even though, think of the cost it would have been to him personally. To leave a land that he has known nearly all his life, to go to a land he doesn't know, to go away from family and friends that he has had for such a long time, to a land he doesn't know. What cost? But he received God's word for what it is, the truth, no matter the cost. And so this morning, that's what I want to see I want us to see this morning out of 1 Thessalonians 2, that we receive God's word for what it is, the truth, no matter the opposition. And so let us uh, turn to our passage and let us see how the Thessalonians received the message of the missionaries. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul here, he's writing to a church that needs encouragement, right? The Thessalonians need encouragement because they have been and they are undergoing persecution. There are those in the culture around them that oppose the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, and they're violent in their opposition to that message. And in the outset of this letter, right, he be, began this letter by really thanking God for them, thanking God for for their faith and their faithfulness. And in part, in 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that that thankfulness, because they had a reception of the message of the gospel that changed them, right? God changed them, and it was evident by their works of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in our passage today, we see that they had a right reception. Again, right reception in verse 13. And so we begin there. And we also thank God constantly for this. Right? Again, he's saying, every time we think of you, we thank God for this. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul says that there is another reason for them to be thankful. So he's thanking God again. They had a right reception of the word. And think about this for a moment. Why would this be a matter of thankfulness? Why would Paul and the, and the uh, missionaries be thankful to God for this? Well, because as a minister of the word, it's a moment of rejoicing when someone receives the word as what it is, when people accept the truth, when they want to live in accord with the truth. It's a moment of rejoicing to see God at work. The missionaries' thankfulness was rooted in their right reception because the Thessalonians heard the message that was preached as God's message, not man's message. They received it as God's word, not man's. But there's a really important question here for us I think we have to answer first off, and that is, how do we know God's word? How do we discern the difference between God's word and man's word, right? These were missionaries who came into Thessalonica who didn't necessarily have the credentials. They, you know, they weren't well known necessarily. So why did the Thessalonians believe the missionaries and not disbelieve them? Or more importantly for us here this morning, how do we discern the difference between God's word and man's word? If someone came up to you and says, God told me, what do you make of that? Because there are preachers today who, who will get up and say, I have a word from the Lord for you this morning. I have a word from God for you. I'm going to declare a word that God gave me. Do you believe them? Should you believe them? And what's at stake here, right? Again, is they come, Paul and company come to the Thessalonians and preach a message and the issue for the Thessalonians is they have to discern, is this true or not? Just as we still have to do today. Whenever anybody gets up to speak, to preach, to teach, we need to be able to discern the difference between truth and falsehood. And when I use the terms, I don't mean them in the postmodern way. Well, I'm going to tell you my truth. right? That's, that's common in our day. I'm going to, I, I want to live out my truth. Now, I'm talking about objective truth and objective falsehood. So how do we discern that? And listen, that applies even in a school setting. When you're before a college professor or a high school professor, middle school teacher, you know, those kinds of things, those kinds of persons, you have to determine is what they're telling me true or not. Because there are teachers who, out of ignorance out of willfulness, do teach false things. Or maybe just out of, um, 
out of accident teach false things. Misunderstanding teach false things. But especially for you as a Christian, your duty is to discern the truth. Your duty as a future church member is to discern the true teaching from false teaching. So how do we do that? We have to do it. How do we do it? Well, we're in a more blessed state than the Thessalonian church because we have the entirety of the scripture. We have God's revealed word. It's a complete canon of scripture. It's lacking in nothing. And it's without, uh, without mixture or hint of error. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is truth. And so for us today, we start with the word of God. When we, when we need to determine is someone teaching truly or not, we start with the word of God. So that means we have to know the word of God ourselves. We cannot merely rely on someone else telling us this is what the word says. We have to know that for ourselves. It doesn't mean we need to go to seminary. It doesn't mean we need to get a Bible college education in order to be able to do that. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean we have to apply ourselves. We have to struggle with the text of the scripture. We have to struggle with the word to understand it. And for some of us, that's going to be easier. Uh, For some of us, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, We all have a varied nature of gifting from God and being able to understand uh, the scripture, understand a a text and work with it. And that's okay. And God has given us, as the church, preachers and teachers to help us to that end. But one of the classic examples of this studying and searching the scriptures to understand it comes actually right after Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, uh, the scripture says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than, than those in Thessalonica. They receive the word with all eagerness, listen to this, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That's Acts 17, 10 through 12. So what we have to understand is, right, the Jewish people did have some of our scripture, right? They had the, the, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament was what we call it. And there in Berea, rather than just reject what Paul was saying, what did they do? They examined the scriptures. They went back to the Old Testament. They went back to their text. They opened the scrolls and said, Paul says this about Jesus out of the book of Isaiah. Does, is that true? Is that true of the Christ? They picked up the scriptures uh, rather than reject what Paul said because it offended their sensibilities. They studied And it's incumbent upon us to pick up our scriptures and to study. Be diligent to examine the truth of what is said. If for nothing else than this, every preacher and teacher is a human with the corruptions of the flesh still evident. I misspeak. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I misspoke when I said, I quoted a scripture out of Mark 7. It's not Mark 7, it's Matthew 7. So here you go, I'm, I'm fixing it. All right, Matthew 7. 
uh, not Mark 7. I had it correct in my notes. I know that where that scripture is because I've studied the Sermon on the Mount, so I know it's Matthew 7. But my brain and my mouth conspired against me, as it were, and I spoke out Mark instead of Matthew. And that's harmless and that's understandable because it's misspeaking, right? Things like that happens, uh, especially uh, sometimes for me, I've got a little bit of dyslexia, so things get jumbled up and it just splurts out uh, because that's how my brain works sometimes, uh, right? It, you you know need to examine, right? You need to look into that. You need to uh, realize that every preacher is a man. And so we'll make mistakes. The problem is, and this is where we have to be, this is why it's so much more important, not the little misspeaking that might happen, but there are those teachers and there are those preachers who speak falsehoods with malicious intent, evil intent. They speak out of greed. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. They want to pass themselves off as sheep. But they are dangerous, ravenous, and they are there to kill and destroy. So we have to study and discern the truth of God because there is much falsehood in the world around us. Understand that this world itself is run, not ultimately, but subordinately by the father of lies, by the evil one who still speaks today and asks the question as he did in the garden. Did God really say, did God really say that? And he speaks always to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. These Thessalonians, they they had a right reception of the word because they received and accepted the message of Paul, not as the message of Paul, not as the message of the missionaries, but as God's word, because that's what it is. The gospel, the good news, is only good if it's true. But that brings us to the second consideration of their right reception. Right? So they discerned the difference and they received and accepted it. What do we need to do when we hear the word of God? We must receive it as such. We must accept it. We must act upon it. We must live in accord with it. And I really want to underscore this because I think in our day we too often miss this. We think... And there are many who come to the scripture, who go to a gathering, come to a gathering such as this. They go to their Bible studies. They pick up their devotional books and they read the word. They listen to the word. They think, and maybe you think, that that's the best that they can do in a day is to read and listen. And that's all that they need to do in a day. No, if you receive and accept the scripture as the word of God, then you must act upon it. Do you get that? James 1, 22 through 25. James 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James tells us that we are not to hear the word only. We're not to only listen to it. Because to only listen to it, to only hear it, and to not act upon it is to deceive ourselves. So if you go to Bible study and you get up from it and you walk away and you do nothing with what you've learned, you've learned nothing. If you walk away from this time that we're having together here this morning, after having heard the word and do nothing with it, you've deceived yourself. And I want to be very clear here, because what I am not saying is this. I am not saying that my words hold the same authority as the word of God. God's word is God's word. But if, and I think I am, accurately applying it to us today, then it behooves you to listen. And again, this is where we have to discern. This is where we have to pick up our scripture. This is where we have to pray to the Holy Spirit and ask him to help us to understand his word because it is the Holy Spirit who gives the word. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's Second Peter 1, 19-21. If this is God's word, then you have to act upon it. You must do all that he commands you to do. You must believe it with a fierceness that says, no matter what other people may say or what they may do, I will hold to the scripture. I will stand upon the scripture. And this is what the Thessalonians did. Right? This is what Paul is saying here in our passage. They received and accepted the word. They heard it and obeyed it. They listened and acted upon it. And the evidence is even what he says at the end of verse 13 there, right? He says, which is at work in you believers, right? They received it as the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So how do we know? How do we know that the right reception of the word resulted in action in the Thessalonian church? Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, the first part of it. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full and with full conviction. Right? The Thessalonians changed when they heard and accepted the word of God as the word of God. Something happened in their midst. There was a difference in how they acted. And actually, we'll see one aspect of it in the rest of our passage this morning. But the word of God will always do its work. A classic verse to that end, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Or the way we might remember it or have studied it, the word will not return to me void. It's not going to come back empty. God says through the prophet Isaiah there that his word will accomplish all of its work. And you may ask, why is it then that when the word is preached, not everyone accepts it? Why is it then that right, a multitude of people can be in one service and some hear and accept it and others hear and reject it? What's going on there? We have to understand that the purpose of God's word, his use of it is manifold. And what that means is it does not always come with the favor and blessing of understanding. Some like to think that that's what that verse means, that the word will accomplish its purpose, that if I find a promise in Scripture, I can just claim that promise and I can say it and God will have to do it. Like he's a magic genie. No. God's purpose for his word, for instance, for those who are sons and daughters, those who believe in Christ, is that they be instructed, encouraged, and admonished. We could look at, again, another classic verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if you are in Christ, when you hear the word, that is God's purpose in your life, that those things would happen, that you would uh, be taught, be instructed, be reproved, be corrected, be trained in righteousness, that you may be complete and equipped for every good work. God's purpose for those who are not his children, though, those who do not receive the word of God as his word, is that they would be judged and condemned. Go back earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And I heard the verse of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Right, we know that first part, right? Here I am, send me. We, when we talk about God's calling, that's what we think of. But we rarely read the rest of the passage because what is it that Isaiah was going to say? Listen to this. Isaiah 6, again, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, happy, happy, joy, joy, everyone's great. No. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We know well that first part. But what God says to Isaiah is, The purpose of my word is this. The purpose of the word that I want to accomplish is this. This is what I want to accomplish. Don't listen, don't see, don't understand, be judged. And be judged, and be judged, 
until the city's lying waste, until the promised land is desolate. That's God's purpose for His Word through the mouth of His prophet Isaiah. So understand this. You may not believe the message of God's Word, but do not think that when you stand before God on the day of judgment, that He will not hold you to a greater account for hearing His Word and doing nothing. You will suffer His eternal judgment and you won't be able to say to Him, but God, I didn't know. He gave you opportunity to hear it. Even this morning, He is giving you an opportunity to hear it. And you Christians, understand that this applies for you too. You may not suffer under God's eternal judgment, but do not think that you're going to get a pass as though uh, it does not matter how you receive His Word and act upon it. You have been warned. You have been told. Apply yourself to know God. Study His Word and live in obedience to it. Not that you may be saved. Not that you may repay your salvation. But because it is right and good and true. And if you love God, you'll keep His commandments. The gospel was at work in the midst of the Thessalonians. And indeed, one way that was evidence, right? He says, which is at work in you believers, we see that they suffered the same suffering. They had the same suffering as the apostles in the other churches. And this was evidence of their right reception. So let's look at same suffering in verses 14 through 16. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul says that their belief in the word of God made them imitators of the churches in Judea, not merely because they believed the same thing, but because they experienced the same thing. Both in Jew and Gentile territories, the same result of the right reception of the word of God followed. Persecution. Why is that? Because people hate the message of God. Though there is great grace offered in the gospel of Christ, people do not want it. For instance, we could look at John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that's John three nineteen through 21 Those in the darkness hate the light because it reveals who they are, and they don't want that. It was the message of God that was so abhorrent to the countrymen of the Thessalonians because it revealed their sinfulness. The Thessalonians stood as light in a dark world and there should be little surprise on our part that they were reviled for it. And it should be little surprise on our part when we're reviled for it. Indeed, you could look at Acts 17, 6 through 8, and you see how the Thessalonians responded. And when they could not find them, that is, when the rabble, the Gentiles, the Jewish people could not find them, and them being Paul and Silas, 
They dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city's authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Right? Jason and the brothers received the message of the gospel. They received it as the word of God and the right reception of the word resulted in their being persecuted. They endured the same sufferings as all the other churches of God have. As their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ back in the Jewish homeland endured. And so Paul says, right, that they suffered the same thing from their own countrymen as the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews. And when we hear that word, this is to say those who are opposed to the message of God. This is not speaking of all Jewish people generally. So this is not just, this is not an ethnic statement on the part of Paul. Paul is not anti-Semitic. Paul is Jewish, right? Remember, Jesus is Jewish. But he's saying those who oppose the message Uh, where he calls as the Jews. He says, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and and opposed all mankind. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And that reference to the prophets could be looking backward to the Hebrew Old Testament prophets because certainly they prophesied about Christ and they were killed for their prophecies, right? They were killed because they delivered the message of God. You could look at Hebrews 11 and see uh, that evidence of that, right? But it seems perhaps more natural to read this verse in a chronological order, meaning they killed Jesus. We know that, right? That's the start. And then they killed the prophets of the early church. So, for instance, we could think of Stephen, who was martyred. Indeed, as Paul's writing this, right, he's one of the ones who stood by as Stephen was martyred. Or we could look at the Apostle James, John's brother, one of the sons of thunder. Uh, They murdered, they persecuted the prophets of the early church, the the preachers and the apostles. And he says, goes on, he says, and drove us out. Right? That's what the Jewish people did all the time. Look at the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts. What do you see? What happens? Paul and his missionary uh, co-workers are in a city. They're preaching. They're teaching. And then the Jewish people get upset at the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. And so they begin to drive them out. Uh, whatever means possible. Whether that's dragging Paul out to the outside the city gates and stunning him to death or near death or whatever it may be. Part of the reason they had to leave the Thessalonian church is because they were driven out, right? That's what the Jewish people, the Jewish opposers to the gospel have done. They persecuted the church. And note the tense of the verbs here in verse 15. They killed and they drove, right? That's past tense. And so it seems in in Paul's mind here that he's, thinking specific events that have happened. Then notice the tense switches and displease God and oppose all mankind. That right, we come to a present tense. So not only is it that they have sin in the past by opposing the message, but they're currently, they're, they're continuing to oppose the message. 
They displease God. Well, how do they displease God? By being disobedient to God. By putting, uh, by putting obstacles in the way between God and His kingdom. Right? They're fighting against the kingdom of God. That surely displeases God. And they oppose all mankind. How is it they oppose all mankind? Well, he continues on in verse 16. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. What was it really that the Jewish opposers to the gospel message were doing? They were opposing the salvation of the Gentiles. Us. They did not want the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. They opposed the salvation of the Gentiles. One scene of this, I think is... uh, Helpful for us to see this in is in Acts 22. Acts 22, verses 17 through 22. Paul has been accosted in the temple. They've almost succeeded in killing him until the Romans intervene. And the Romans take Paul. And before Paul is kind of taken and put away in the, in the barracks, uh, in, in the... Um, in the jail, he asked the, the centurion, he says, can I get up and say something to those who have attacked me? And so he goes through and he recites his testimony, essentially. And we get to verse 17. When I, and again, this is Paul speaking here, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Right, The Jewish opposition to the Gentile salvation is evidenced right there. Right, They oppose all mankind. They hate the gospel message and they hated that it was being given to the Gentiles. But God's purpose is to save a people for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus himself says, for instance, in John chapter 10, that he has sheep and he has sheep that he needs to gather into his fold. Sheep from outside the fold that he needs to gather into it. Or, for instance, in Matthew 8, he says that there are many from the east and west who are going to come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But those who are sons of the king would be cast out. These evil opposers of God's message want to stop God's purpose in saving someone, saving people from every nation. And then we wonder, why are they displeasing to God? What's God's purpose, though, in allowing this persecution of His people? I think that's interesting because we see here 
in verse 16, says always to fill up the measure of their sins. That they might fill up to the full the measure of their sins. Sometimes God's mercy, understand there's a difference between God's mercy and God's grace. God's grace is favor that is unmerited, unearned. God's mercy is him withholding what is rightfully ours. And in this case, judgment. His forbearance in not dealing with with us as our sins deserve sometimes. His mercy, his long-suffering is that we might fill up the full measure of our sins. That his wrath, his just wrath would be filled to the brim. For instance, Genesis 15. Genesis 15 verses 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Listen to this. And they shall not come back here in the fourth generation. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's going to take 400 years for the Amorites to fill the full measure of their sins that when God's wrath is poured out on them, when the people enter into the promised land and when they go and they slaughter everyone, right? We sometimes stand back aghast. Certainly in our modern culture, we sometimes do this. When we see God tell uh, his people, go into a city and kill everyone and everything. The baby, the cute little innocent baby that's lying in the, in the crib and take a sword and kill it. And we think, how could God say that? Because we don't understand our sin. We don't understand sinfulness. We don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand that God has been bearing his wrath, tiding it, holding on. He's had mercy on them for 400 years, but there's going to come a point where will all be swept away in it. So too, for the Jewish opposition to the gospel, God's wrath would burst forth against them. And indeed, Paul seems to indicate that it has. Right? He says at the la- that last part of verse 16 there, but wrath has come upon them at last. And we don't know exactly what Paul means by this. It could have been that there was a famine in Jerusalem. We know about that from the other uh, letters of Paul where he takes a collection and and brings that back. Uh, Even in the book of Acts, there's mention of a a prophet of the church says uh, there's going to come a famine. It could be the expulsion of the Jews from Rome where there's persecution against the Jews in Rome. And and that's actually in Acts 18.2. It could have been some other event. But make, make no mistake. Their sin is going to be paid in full. They would bear all of the wrath of God for their sins. And listen closely. You may think that you are getting away with your sin. You may think that God has missed 
your sinfulness, missed what you've been doing, engaging in opposition to him and to his word. You may think that your disobedience is inconsequential. Know this, unless you repent, unless you turn from your sins, unless you believe in Christ Jesus, you will bear the full judgment of God for your sins. He is yet merciful. He is long-suffering. And He has given you this day, this time, to confess your sins before Him and to plead for His grace. But do not think that His patience means that judgment will never come. It is evident that there are those who do not hear the word of God as the word of God. The God of this age has blinded him, as Paul says to the Corinthian church. Indeed, the evidence often shows itself in wanting to stop those who do believe in the word of God. But what of you? How do you receive this word? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't get to choose which portion of the scripture you'll believe in and act upon. You must believe. You must act upon that which you read and hear. And understand that. Understand that you can ignore anything I say of my own authority because I have no authority to tell you anything. My authority means nothing. But if I, and I do strive as much as possible, I do strive that it is so, I pray that it is so, I do pray that it is so that my words are derived from God's words, that the applications that I give you during the course of a sermon is not my understanding, is not my opinion, but it is what it comes from God's word, then you need to receive the word as such. And what does James say? Again, James one twenty two, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Heed then James' admonition and exhortation. Be doers of the word. Find what the word tells you to do and be busy about that. Again, not to earn your salvation, not to repay God for your salvation, but because by its very nature, the word of God demands obedience. More than that, if you have comprehended something of the love of God, you should want to obey him. Again, that's what Jesus says in John 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love your teacher at school, you'll do what they ask you. If you hate them, you probably won't. Some of you do not receive this as God's word. This may be proved in what you say about it. You don't speak of it as God's word. Common in our culture. There's a whole... Uh, convention, uh, conference that goes on that try and ascertain the real words of Jesus. And you know, when even when you describe it that way, there's something wrong, right? The real words of Jesus. And so they kind of take the sayings of Jesus and they categorize them and say, this is something that Jesus did say, he maybe said, he didn't say. And they cut and paste, you know, the scriptures and, and tear apart uh, whatever they see of the words of Jesus, and how do they ascertain whether or not those things are true or not? It's however they feel about it. Well, that's miraculous. Jesus probably didn't say that. Or this is not really offensive, so Jesus definitely said that. Right? That's what they do. They, they take apart the scriptures. 
It's common in our culture. The things that are offensive to our sensibilities, we ignore. Some people do that with the Word of God. You may do that with the Word of God. You may prove your disbelief of the Word of God in doing that. You may also prove your disbelief of God and His Word by your action. When God says something is sin, do you accept that it is sinful, or do you justify your sin? Do you make light of what you're doing? Do you uh, just plain embrace your sin and ignore God's Word? God says that this is going to happen. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul says here, right, even they know truly that those who do such things deserve to die. And unless you accept the word of God, unless you believe in the testimony of Jesus Christ, you will likewise die. You will be cast into that place of eternal torment, hell. And it doesn't matter if you believe in hell or not. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter. If you believe in hell or not, it is real and it is eternal and it will be your place of residence for all of eternity because of your refusal to receive the word of God. But God has graciously and oh, the grace of God, God has graciously made a provision by which you may be forgiven of your sin. He has made possible your forgiveness. Christ himself has borne the wrath of his people's sins on his cross. There is no sin too great that he cannot forgive. There is no sin too great that he cannot forgive. And there is no sinner too lost that he cannot save. There is no sinner too lost that he cannot save. If They but look to Christ Jesus, if but you look to Christ Jesus. So repent. Turn away from your sins and turn to God. Accept his word for what it is, his word. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news and be saved. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, at work in our minds, that we might understand that this is your word, that it is what you have spoken, that we might know you, that we might know who we are, and that we might know uh, what to do. Father, that we might know that you are holy and righteous and good, and you have commanded as our creator, that we be obedient to certain uh, realities, that we might love you with all of our heart as we ought do, that we might love others as even you have loved us. And Father, that we have been disobedient unto that. From our very birth, we have been disobedient against 
uh, all that you have commanded. And yet, even in that, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that while the wages of sin is death, there is life in Christ Jesus. Oh, so, Father, please, by your Holy Spirit's presence and power, even now, sink that truth of your word deep into our hearts. Father, that we would confess our need for Christ this morning, whether that is for the very first time or whether that is just another expression of our need of you and as, a, as a Christian. Father, that we would dwell with you eternally, that we would see your glory, that we would worship you in the splendor of your glory, that we would understand and know the joy that is ours because of your salvation, that we would boast of your grace. Oh, that we would sing of your grace again and again and again. Together, and as we go into a world that so needs your grace. Father, may your word accomplish its full purpose. Have mercy and grace upon us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.